100%. I mean, uh, you know, you, you want to do better for the patients. You, you follow this literature that you think is going to make a better case for the patient's outcome in terms of evidence. And you hope what you read translates. And like Justin said, um, I can agree. And sometimes it doesn't. And sometimes it puts a big question mark as to like, well, uh, am I reading this right? Welcome to another episode of Respiratory on Ice, where we discuss all things pulmonary critical care while gracefully consuming adult beverages. I'm your host, Justin Phillips, along with my friends, Lance Bangalinan and Rob Bautista. What's up, boys? What another beautiful day in San Francisco. I just seen that we're going to be stuck at home for a little bit longer. You guys see that? Yeah, so we are extending shelter in place to end on my damn birthday may 30th oh, no it is on your birthday uh, no <laughs> one gives a damn <laughs> <laughs> i do i do we'll be doing we'll be doing a zoom session zoom session like virtual barbecue <laughs> well we should celebrate it how we did last year uh, we did craft beers on your birthday i believe a couple sours and whatnot so let's pop some of those open <laughs> hear that or we just uh, Either that or we just do a full-on uh, barbecue at the end of the month and just say, we're done with sheltering in place. <laughs> we're, we're done with sheltering in place, and we'll be, like, right on the brink of summer. So perfect time for summertime cocktails. Mm-hmm. Uh, speaking of cocktails, what are you drinking today? <laughs> uh, well, I'm really growing into this nice fine daiquiri it's mixed with uh plantation pineapple it's amazing and i gotta confess what i thought a daiquiri was because i am like i said every episode i say is not as well versed as these two fellas here uh and i'm learning now what i thought a daiquiri was was this red slushy (laughs) strawberry type of beverage that I never wanted to drink. But as I consume this daiquiri now, it's one of the best drinks. <laughs> you, what, your, what your perception of a daiquiri is like every other American's perception of what a daiquiri is, right? You, you have had way too many Cancun like <laughs> spring break vacations. When people think of daiquiris, that's exactly what they think of, is the frozen types of daiquiris that you, you probably get from Chevy's, from Cancun, um, you know, Vegas. From like Vegas, and it's just like, that is a version of a daiquiri, yes, but when you talk about what a classic daiquiri is, rum, lime, sugar, like, it can be a really tasty drink. Yes. Not that diluted, bastardized version that Americans have created. I mean, there's tons of things we've ruined, including daiquiris. (laughs) (laughs) Like frozen margaritas. With daiquiris in its classic form, rum, lime juice, and simple syrup, it's it's a fantastic damn drink on a hot day. Well, what are you fellas drinking? I think Um, we're all drinking daiquiris, but what kind of... uh, What... What rum are you using? Me? Oh, I'm using the uh, Plantations uh, Pineapple. It's so tasty. I I like pineapple in my drinking. I can really taste that hint of it. <laughs> so good. 
So myself, I got a little bit fancier. So I did a white rum of uh, four square probitas, and then I did it with a slight hit of um, Jamaican style Smith and Cross overproof Navy Navy strength rum. Then I did uh, my simple syrup. I did it with a pandan simple syrup. So I got some pandan leaves and then made my simple syrup and steeped it in that. What do you drink, Jess? I was able to do uh, an overproof uh, rum fire. So it's a Jamaican, really funky type of uh, taste. Um, rum, super overproof, kind of like Smith and Cross. Uh, it's it's really boozy. It's a nice white rum. Definitely, it's got some heat to it. Um, What's the proof? What's the proof on it? Uh, da, 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 da. It doesn't say on the bottle. This is sixty three percent by volume. So whatever that is, one twenty six. Wait, as a spirit, let me ask you as. Uh, as you're drinking it, is it something you can make uh, another rum drink like a, a mojito with? Is that something you would make with it? It'd be a little rough on a mojito. Because I don't know if like they, and maybe if there's like some cocktail people listening, uh, I don't know. So typically you make mojitos with a white rum, but yeah. I'm not necessarily sure that you use a Jamaican rum, which is typically... It has this profile that they describe as like funky, which is it's like banana, um, kind of like earthy. Um, and I don't know if that's like the, the flavor that you're looking for for a mojito. That goes into like some old school. So I did a little research into it, not too much, but that goes into like column still versus pot still. And then which style, whether it's like Spanish style, some types of Caribbean, Jamaican, there's, there's a bunch of different, but it, it's primarily like the, the column still versus the pot still where you can get cleaner flavors versus funkier flavors. So I guess it would pair right with the mint, I suppose, in the mojito. It, I don't know necessarily know. Um, yeah. I don't no. know. Try it. I mean, no. yeah. um, I, what I can tell you for sure, though, is that would be one potent ass mojito like <laughs> i mean oh yeah overproof so, rum just like overproof like whiskeys and all that they have some punch to it um they're very very boozy cocktails and it's funny because this looks like a very pretty like it has a nice like off-white color i also to to add to the funkiness i did use a couple of dashes of angostura bitters which is you know from the caribbeans as well um just to give it a little different taste so daiquiris all around Sweet. I guess that's a mojito I won't serve to my mom then. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Unless you're trying to put it to sleep, then maybe. Yeah. All righty. Cheers, fellas. All right. Uh, all right. So if I pose this question to the two of you, how do you approach looking at literature? Like, how do we parse through all publications, all the various types of studies, and what do we take as face value and what do we analyze as potentially being able to change practice um googling something and clicking on the first thing is probably not the best suggestion <laughs> so for change of practice you're probably going to have to look at something either a, a randomized control trial or something higher but as for face value we have to understand the hierarchy of the pyramid because at the bottom would be something like bench studies or something like animal studies. And then you would progress onto human patients and then 
we would look at first case reports. Case reports are a single patient. Then you look at case series where you're following a bunch of patients on your own within your single center study. And then you would move on to the next, you would move on to the next year, whether it's like case control. Case control is something where you would have to find something that's very rare, something like cancer, where you know it's not going to happen very often, but you want to find that incident case compared to people of the same ilk, which is what they consider matching. Then you would look at a cohort and you would say next that would be on the same tier is a cross-sectional study where you're following people for a certain amount of time, but you're only looking at it at a certain time period, like one single point along that timeline. The other part would be you move on to the next is where you're doing a cohort where the people want to call it retrospective, prospective. Either way, you're following a people from enrollment, which most people term is time zero or baseline time, all the way to their primary endpoint. Where they're, and in most cases, they're thinking about doing an intervention to see if something happens along that time point. And then you would move on to the next tier, which is a randomized control trial, where you randomize patients and you take out all those confounding factors, and it's a lot more rigorous and it takes a lot more time. That's why those are usually seen as gold standards because those are representative of whatever patient population they're usually looking at. And now a systematic review and meta-analyses, they take, they combine, sometimes they'll combine randomized control trials, sometimes they'll combine randomized control trials with observational studies if they have good validity. And then they'll just take all of those, combine them and just show you what is really true among these huge populations. But for face value, for a basic student or someone coming out and not knowing too much about journals, what to read, myself, the advice I would give is look at reputable journals that are peer-reviewed, especially in your line of work. For us as respiratory care practitioners, respiratory care is there, but then you look at the bigger ones, the blue journal, chest, then you look at... New England Journal of Medicine, Lancet, British, the British Medical Journal, things like those. And hopefully there's RCTs of what you're looking at because those will guide us along the way for the most part. Well said, Rob. And I guess it creates this pyramid, as you say, because the methodology gets more complex and rigorous and it helps differentiate better information. Yes. Got it. Lance, you're a, a pretty avid um, consumer of the literature yourself. Um, what's your thought process when you're looking up information? Who the authors were in particular is what draws me to it because some particular authors hold a high case of reputability that I tend to follow, especially in a certain topic. And as I look into the information, um, I don't know, I'll go into like PubMed and try to categorize it very specifically in terms of advanced searches and uh, try to get more detail into a certain topic. Now, I'm going to take a couple of steps back because you did mention an interesting point where there were certain authors that you tend to gravitate to mm -hmm. um, by default. Is there a certain reason why? Or is it all fanboy? Is it high beast? Is it <laughs> <laughs> well, like, 
<laughs> <laughs> well, yes, Which no. it's a fair question. No, it, it truly is. It truly is. And it, it's a yes and a no, right? Um, yes, because I could be a fanboy about a certain... T- oh, I don't want to call myself a fanboy, but yes. I mean, I'm 100% <laughs> a fanboy when it comes to certain <laughs> I'm not going to lie. I don't, no, no, seriously. And, and it's true, but sometimes we gravitate uh, to these things because these certain authors uh, create great information and great evidence and uh, because they know how to research well. And, and sometimes they include the right people and right um, clinical institutions as well, too. Would you agree that it's probably, you know, a lot of their credibility uh, lies along the lines that they publish a certain way and that they follow a formula, a publication that tends to often produce things that we'd say are gold standards, like they often gravitate towards trying to build randomized controlled trials, or they are the heads of meta-analyses. Yeah, but um, I mean, there are certain instances where, uh, you know, a hot topic comes up and there may not be a randomized controlled trial for a certain topic. Um, COVID for one being an example, you know. Yeah. Rob's looking at me like he's going to punch me in the throat. <laughs> yeah, don't punch well, me. Well, are are there like are there certain researchers that you tend to gravitate to? Absolutely, because some people have the tendency and they've have the track record of putting out great information. Let's talk about COVID, for instance. I hate to bring up the topic, but it's it's the hot topic. The one person, the one person putting out more information. The damn near everyone else out there right now is Gatnoni. He's published his he's published his observational study, which is a, a which is a descriptive study, and then he's published many editorials in other journals. Yeah, face value, it sounds great. It's great for observational studies to understand what he's talking about, but is it something that we should use to change clinical practice? In my estimation, absolutely not. Well. I- I don't want to bring bias back in, but uh, another example I do want to use also aside from COVID um, is, for example, when I think the terms of technical mechanical ventilation and the engineering behind it, the first person that I think of is Rob Chapert. When I look at a paper, um, I gravitate to it because his name is stapled to it. So um, am I a fanboy in that perspective? Probably, but also one because he's reputable in that sense. But it's like it's, it's like anything else. If someone has a reputation of putting out great stuff, you're going to listen to them. In previous history, if, if Benjamin Franklin put out something about science, you're going to listen. If Einstein put out something or if Newton put out something about physics, you're like, they're leaders in the industry. I'm going to listen to them. Should we still question them? Should we still question them? Absolutely. So you're saying you won't buy the Elon Musk ventilator? <laughs> <laughs> is it going to self-drive? Is it going to show me how to ventilate? I don't know. Maybe. It's not going to need you. <laughs> <laughs> now, I've been priming you guys um, because you know what my next point is going to be. And if you don't, shame on you because I'm about to stick it to you. Does the randomized control trial mean gospel? I'll give this a two-part answer. Prior to starting my master's, 
yes, I thought RCTs were gospel. After I'd taken epidemiology and biostatistics classes, no, definitely not taken as gospel because you still have to understand the rigor and method of the study itself. There is, you know, a progression of types of literature that's published. And we do have biases of what to accept and what to reject. But as a consumer of the literature, being able to analyze it is probably the best tool that you have at your hand. There are many RCTs that are poorly designed. If it is well designed, well thought out and well executed, and then absolutely in those cases. But you have to you have to satisfy the tests. Would you take a good observational study that you agree upon versus an RCT that you disagree upon? Absolutely. Okay. 100%. Good. Because what I believe is, I think a greatly designed observational study can pose the question, this really needs to be investigated with greater depth. And it will, if anything, stimulate other individuals to want to investigate that to you know move up the chain move up the ladder to what we consider high level studies and Lance you know as well as I do the the research that we've been involved with are well at that lower tier if not like the tier underneath you know but they prompt the questions that we had um, to be accepted at a greater level and either is rejected or accepted and it does like help build the framework for, for higher level studies that can change practice it creates it creates a better argument is what it does it does agreed agreed and and, and I, overall and i think that's what makes you a better consumer at looking at literature is yes following the guidelines but yes does this make sense read the literature out there but at the same time question the literature under get a better understanding of what you're reading but question it because there is nothing wrong with questioning it for sure for sure and, and like rob said it develops a base so that way they can take certain perspectives of a study and recreate a better study maybe out of it whether you're trained to or not at some point, if you read enough medical literature or scientific literature, you're, you, you kind of will grow the bias that, oh, yeah, RCTs, meta-analysis, systematic reviews, that's kind of it. Uh, and everything else is, you know, shit. I'm, I'm very guilty of it, you know, and I've done it over my career at this point where, like, one month I felt a certain way about a topic because I read up on it so much and... I had biases because of authors and funding from certain uh, entities. And I'm just like, this has to be, this has to be the word. This has to be gospel. Sure. And I look, I look at it, you know, retrospectively and I'm just like, what the fuck was I thinking? Um, these were questions I had, but I just can't hop on the train. Right. And it really show it, it really highlights the fact that science is so complicated as you know 
bedside clinicians, it doesn't seem that way, right? It, 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 and maybe you guys can chime in. When I, apply, when I try to apply the literature at the bedside, for me, either it is or it isn't. I'm just like, well, so-and-so told me to do X. I dialed the knob on the ventilator. I seen something else. Yeah, 100%. I mean, uh, you know, you, you want to do better for the patients. You, you follow this literature that you think is going to make a better case for the patient's outcome in terms of evidence. And you hope what you read translates. And like Justin said, um, I can agree. And sometimes it doesn't. And sometimes it puts a big question mark as to like, well, uh, am I reading this right? <laughs> well, so, so one of my mentors for this program, after I completed my first year in this master's program, he goes, so how did you like the program? He's like, I was like, it, it's very informative. He goes, then he tells me, he's like, so do you think all journals out there are complete full of shit? <laughs> <laughs> so they made me step back and think about it. I just started laughing to myself and I was like, I don't know if I can think of everything as bullshit, but it makes me question everything out there. Then he goes, that's the exact track that you should be doing. Mm. Wow. That's some great advice from a mentor. <laughs> I, that's some great advice. And that was a, a good amount of bullshit from three bozos. So <laughs> um, <laughs> I guess we'll, we'll leave it at that. Um, it, it, you know, it's, it's, it's always funny being able to talk about things like this because it, it is, it's very taboo, you know, right? Um, and it's not just when it comes to medical literature. Like when you, you talk about taking advice, you try to take it from the person that is most reputable. So I don't fault people for, you know, jumping on fanboy or gravitating towards a certain author. But hopefully we, we provided some clarity on um, the type of science that's out there and, and how we navigate through it. And we'll leave it at that. Unless you boys have anything else to say. Uh, no. I know Rob's jacked up on some overproof rum. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, boy. Uh, Jamaican rum. Well, in that case, uh, Lance. Yeah. Oh, you look like you had something else to say. He's good. Oh no, I'm just gonna polish up the rest of my uh, daiquiri here. Uh, oh, oh, wait, wait, don't don't polish it just yet. You you hold on to that. You will have a great class later. <laughs> I hope you don't hear that. <laughs> uh, in that case, I'm Justin Phillips, and I'm uh, Lance Bagalina. Rob Bautista. That's gonna be the Respiratory on Ice podcast. We'll catch you next time. See you all. Thank you.